First Timothy chapter four, verse one. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we often hear what we want to hear. I pray this morning for each of us that we might, Lord, hear maybe what we don't want to hear. And that our ears would be open to the whisperings of your Spirit. And our hearts would be open to the truth. And Lord, that we would approach this word this morning with humility and with a desire to hear your voice. In Jesus' name. Amen. President Trump visited the United Nations in New York City last week. Don't know if you heard, but apparently a serious conflict erupted in the dining room. Turkey was dropped. Greece was spilled. China was broken. And Germany left hungry. That's an old joke. (laughs) But you know what? I was thinking about feasting, especially after Wednesday night. How many of y'all were out here on Wednesday night? Let me just see who were. We had a great time. It was joyful. It was fun. It was celebratory. We we, uh, celebrated Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, It wasn't a feast of food. Although we did have cookies and danishes, but it, it was it was a feast nonetheless, a feast of faith. And that was really my experience as I went home after the fact. It was just a feast of faith. I, I felt like we just fed on the word, we fed on the worship, we we exalted in the Lord. And some of what we were doing on Wednesday was was playful and again celebratory, but at the same time. I want to simply remind you in this that squeaky plastic shofars don't exactly capture the rich meaning of Yom Teruah. We need to bear in mind who our worship is really for and what our celebration is truly about. That there is something profoundly serious to the day of trumpets. You see, as the Jewish child still tasted the sweetness of apples dipped in honey, which is traditional Rosh Hashanah fare, And even as the sound of of trumpets slowly dissipated into the Jerusalem night air, the Feast of Trumpets always called out the most serious season on the Hebrew calendar. For after that trumpet was blown, it ushered in the Yamim Noraim, as we talked about last week, the days of awe, ten days of reflection, of repentance, of seriously looking at one's life and thinking about what was coming on Tishri the 10th, that is Yom Kippur. 
the Day of Atonement. That day once a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And on that day, the sins of Israel were covered over. And every year, the Jewish people would have to think about that. I don't know, for those of you who have been watching the news and and hearing all the buzz about yesterday being the end of the world, did you at all during the day yesterday have a second thought about what you were doing? Did, Did you at all pause and say, I want to be right with you, Jesus. If today should be the day. I want to make sure that my heart is right. See, that, that thought crossed my mind a couple times yesterday. And I'll tell you, I was no more expectant for yesterday to be the day of the rapture than I am for today I, 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 than I was for last week. As I've told you, I'm expectant every day. But things like the day of trumpets, what that did for Israel was it called into their attention, it called up before their minds what was about to take place, which was the day of atonement, which was a, remind, a reminder that, man, without, without God's atonement, without these sacrifices every week, every year, we're done. This is a serious thing. And Israel knew they desperately needed the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. By the way, why did Jesus die on Passover? You ever thought about it? We talked about last week how he fulfilled the fall or the spring feast, right? Why did he die on Passover rather than on Yom Kippur? And you think about it, Yom Kippur, I mean, that's the big one. That's the one where God said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover over your sin. Why not Yom Kippur? Listen, I would suggest to you that He didn't just come to atone for our sins. He came to deliver us from them. That Jesus didn't just come to cover over our sins for the past year and give us a fresh start for the new year. No, He let us out from under sin's bondage forever. That's why Passover was the day of the crucifixion. Because in Passover came deliverance. And in Jesus we are delivered from our sin. No longer to be held under it. No longer to be looking over our shoulder. No longer knowing that this next year we're going to need the Day of Atonement again. Because the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus delivered us. Isn't that great? And so in the way that that God presents to us Himself and His love and His grace, man, our faith is a feast. It truly is a joyful, filling, deeply satisfying, profoundly eternal feast. Paul even says, if you look down in verse 6, that we are constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Constantly nourished. And we need to be. We need to be because every successive generation needs to figure it out. Every successive generation across 2,000 years needs to come to faith. Now, we have 2,000 years of church history to help, but we in this generation still have to come to faith. Still have to decide if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to believe in the Lord. We're no better than those of the first century. And it's interesting to me that the things we read, the prescriptions for Paul to those early churches still apply today because we like them are still developing and learning faith he says in verse 6 that we're constantly nourished that word constantly there you see it in italics the reason why it's there is because the word nourished 
it implies the constantly because it's, it's in the present participle. That is, it's an ongoing nourishment. It is not you were fed last night, you should be good for a week. It was you are constantly taking in the word, you are always feeding on it. And there's plenty to pass around, and the plates are full, and seconds and thirds are always encouraged, and the kitchen is never bare. However, there are dangers in the dining room. The trumpets were not only blown in Israel to announce the feast days, they were also blown as a call to arms. The trumpets would sound and the people would be at war. And we are at war. Are we not? Are we not engaged in the fight of our lives? Maybe we don't always think about that, especially on lovely fall days in the Northwest. But we are at war. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but we are fed and nourished that we might face a cosmic conflict that is waged on the battlefields of the soul and of the heart. And the serious thing that we've got to talk about this morning is that in this war there are casualties. Dangers in the dining room seems like a weird title for a sermon. Because typically when we get into the dining room, that's one of the safer places that we are in our homes, in our lives. And we get to sit around the table, it's all good. Family. But the war enters the dining room. And that's what Paul deals with in chapter 4. We're going to take chapter 4 in two parts. One part we'll deal with primarily this morning, and then the second part we're not going to be able to do much with because we won't have time. And we'll deal with that midweek, so Wednesday night and, and Thursday night. But here are the two parts for you looking at this and thinking it through. Part one is the spiritual danger. As I said, dangers in the dining room. And then part two will be the servant's discipline. So the spiritual danger, about the first six verses, and then picking up in verse six, the servant's discipline. And this week we'll be covering both of those. Let's start now this morning with the spiritual danger. Chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. The word fall away is aphistomai. It should sound familiar. We just talked about its, its brother word, which is apostasia in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Aphistomai is the verb form of apostasia, and it means to depart or to leave. And the context makes the word clear. So right here, the context is absolutely clear that in later times, some will fall away, will depart from the faith. And so the word aphistomite here is being used as we use the word apostasy in English. This is specifically a departure from the faith. That is faith in Jesus. And you might note he uses the phrase the faith. Now he'll do that from time to time in his letters because Paul isn't talking about faith in general or whatever your particular belief system is. It's the faith. The faith that is in Jesus Christ. And he says, prepare for it. Be aware. In latter times, some will fall away from the faith. He echoes this in his final letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Turning aside 
falling away casualties in the dining room. People turning from faith, even where faith is presented on the table before them. Now, you might read this and say, whoa, I thought my salvation was secure. It is, as far as Jesus is concerned. He's not going to let anybody go. He is 100%. You can count on Him. You can trust in Him. If He says He will save you, all you need to do is trust that He will. And He's got you covered. But, while Jesus will never let anybody go, neither is God going to drag anyone kicking and screaming into heaven. He doesn't force. Love doesn't force. We all know salvation doesn't depend on us, but, but we worry when we see someone leave the faith. Or at least someone appear to leave the faith. How many have known someone who seemed to be church-going, Bible-studying, Jesus-loving, maybe you prayed with them, you walked with them in the Lord, and then they departed from the faith? Have you known someone in that position? I see a few hands slowly kind of going, I, I, I don't know. I think, yeah. I, mean, I, I knew that person, but I don't know. what. what and you know what we do? When we see someone leave the faith, we come up with carefully constructed, comforting theological explanations to make ourselves feel better. We'll say things like this. If someone falls away, well, they must not have been saved in the first place. Okay. I mean, if that makes us feel better. But Paul here, no, the Spirit here says explicitly that some will fall from the faith, which indicates there was at one point faith. You can't fall from something unless you have it to begin with. And so it sounds to me as though there are those who will at one time at least make a profession of faith and then walk away from that. And the reality is, who really knows the heart? Do you? Do you know someone's heart? Do you know someone truly believes or truly believed and no longer believe? Or maybe they were just faking And never quite got there. I mean, do you know the human heart? I don't. Who can discern such things? The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Who can understand it? And the Lord answers His own question. I can. I alone search the heart. So God knows the heart of every person. The point I'm making here is simply this. Whatever theology or language or spiritual semantics we might use to explain someone who appears to have left Jesus, the Spirit explicitly says, in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Latter times. What does he mean by that? I think Paul sees a long shadow cast back from the future, but visible in his day of departures from the faith. And I say this with a heavy heart, but perhaps departures from the faith even among those gathered here this morning. I have the the difficulty of sometimes being aware That within our fellowship on any given Sunday, there may be people who will not be in fellowship five years from now. Or should the Lord tarry ten years from now. There may be people raised up in faith and before the Lord who choose not 
to continue to follow. I, I don't like saying that. I don't even like thinking about that. But the truth is, just because you come to the table doesn't mean you're taking in the nourishing Word of God. Just because you show up doesn't mean that you're receiving the food that God is putting out before us. What would cause someone to leave Jesus? Someone who had any semblance of faith. What would cause them to depart? And what Paul does here now is he... He exposes three spiritual later time dangers. And if we can apply the latter days or the later times to our age or to the end of the age, the last days in which we live, we ought to pay close attention that there are three spiritual dangers here that he lays out that would cause someone or has caused people over the years to depart, to walk away, to say, I've had enough. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So the first danger is deceitful spirits. Deceitful is an interesting word in the Greek. It's planois, and it it could be translated seductive tramps. Or, or vagabond imposters. It indicates those who lead to mislead. And I was thinking about this word, and it fits perfectly. The deceptive spirits, seductive vagabonds, those who don't ever really settle. Satan is a drifter. By biblical explanation and description, Satan is a drifter. In Job 1 and and Job 2, we see Satan come before the Lord. When the sons of God present themselves before God, Satan is there among them. He still has access, you know, to heaven. And, And Job tells us that... He's asked, what have you been up to? What are you doing? Where have you been? And and he says, I've been roaming about the earth. That's what he does. He's a drifter. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's always drifting, always unsettled. Demons are vagabonds. They're nomads. They're restless, they're unsettled, and they're agitated beings. Well, how do you know that? Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty four, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order, and then it goes and takes seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And that's, that's descriptive of, I mean, that's, that's sound demonology. That demons are agitated, unsettled creatures. That they are vagabond imposters. That they are deceitful spirits, constantly on the move, always unsettled. By contrast to this, Jesus comes to stay. The word is abide. He shows up and and inhabits a heart to stay there and to give life forever. The deceitful spirit's not looking for a home. He's looking for a crash pad. He's looking for somewhere to stop on his journey along the way. A place to loot and decimate and trash and then move on. 
John chapter 10 verse 10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, Jesus says, and have it abundantly. And so there is something of the demonic realm and evil spirits that is constantly on the move and never settled. That's why you know you're at least under attack if you're feeling agitated. You know, if you're unsettled and you're, you're nervous and you're worried and, and oh no, oh, and you're stressed out, and that's, that's not God. That's never the way the Lord works. He will not stress you into faith. Where the Holy Spirit is, there's life and peace, there's freedom. That's what Jesus does. And that's when I feel most settled is when I stop in the insanity of this world and I recognize the presence of Jesus, there's peace. Not with the deceitful spirits, however. By the way, and get this, it's so important. Paul uses this phrase, deceitful spirits. You realize that can also mean human spirits. Because we all have a spirit. They're the spirit that is within us. Yes, there are spirits of demons. There are also spirits of humans. And human spirits can be deceitful spirits. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by what? By their fruit. You'll know them by their fruits, uh, plural. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So there are deceitful spirits roaming the earth in human bodies. (laughs) Because human spirits can be deceitful spirits. Bible students, what is the test of a prophet? How do you know when someone makes a prophecy or prophesies something that they are a legitimate prophet, that they are legitimately speaking of and from the Lord? We don't have to guess at this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21, God says, You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Like if people are giving prophecies out there, how do we know what is from the Lord and what is not from the Lord? And he himself says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He even says in Deuteronomy 18 verse 20, and that prophet shall die. Now don't start picking up stones. But do you realize that those who predicted the end of the world for yesterday are, according to this word, false prophets? Because they prophesied an event that did not happen. They are not of the Lord. They have spoken presumptuously. You ought not listen to them. This is one of the reasons why I refuse to be a date setter. And why I even said a week ago as we talked about what was going to be happening in the skies over Jerusalem yesterday and what was happening through the week, why I said he could come at any time. Don't be disappointed if we don't go home yesterday. Don't be disappointed if it doesn't happen the way that you were told by someone that was going to happen. If someone is speaking something as truth and fact and it does not take place, that is presumption. And there is a lot of presumptuous prophecy going on around in the world today. Sadly, the most deceitful 
are often themselves the most deceived. Isaiah 44 verse 20 says he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't tell. 2 Timothy 3.13 Paul says evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. Listen, deceiving and being deceived. See, that's the thing about deception. You don't even know if you're out there deceiving others. You often don't realize you are because you yourself are deceived. Lies beget lies. And Satan has learned a thing or two in the church since the first century. He is a student of these things. And one of the things that Satan has learned is rather than fight head-to-head against the church, it's best just to place membership. Better just to, you know, pull up a chair at the table. Or better still, to serve on the teaching team. To engage in deceptive teaching within the church so that the nourishment is actually killing rather than encouraging faith. And so we come to the second spiritual danger Paul writes about, the doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits is number one. Number two, doctrines of demons. We need to be aware there is twisted teaching going on, both in Ephesus, where Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, be aware, this is what's taking place, be on the alert. There are demonic doctrines at hand, but folks, we see that today as well. Paul calls out two specific examples. I'll show you here, prove it to you. Verse 3, Talking about, and skipping verse 2 for a moment, talking about doctrines of demons. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Marriage and food. In Ephesus, the problem with both of these issues was a forced legalistic asceticism. And it may even have to do with Paul's appeal to the women regarding bearing children back in chapter 2. Because they were even saying, you don't have kids, Uh, if you're married, you need to abstain from any kind of sexual relations. If you're not married, don't get married because you you need to not do that anymore. We're now these new spiritual beings. It was kind of the early Gnosticism. And so Paul's dealing with that in Ephesus, but i got to ask the question, do we see any of this going on today? What do you mean? Forbidding marriage, dietary abstinence, doctrines of demons. Now you might say, okay, well regarding the first one, no one would forbid marriage. Well, the word forbid is koluo in the Greek and it means to hinder or to deny. So let me ask you this, has there been a denial of biblical marriage? Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read... That he who created from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus affirmed what has been going on from the very beginning, what God ordained, that there is one pattern for marriage. There is only one definition of marriage, and that is between a man and a woman. That's it. We say, well, yeah, but I, I think times have changed. Had they changed from the 4,000 years from when God ordained marriage to when Jesus affirmed it? 4,000 years, no change. Had they changed in the last 2,000 years since Jesus said this? Hey, culture changes all the time, but the Word of God never changes. And so here we are today in a culture that is denying or forbidding marriage. That is biblical marriage. Saying there's another way to go. And redefining marriage is a denial of God's design. And let me say this as gently as I can. It is not about human rights. It is about divine order. It's about what God established and whether or not we are willing to listen to that and pay attention to it. So yes, today in this culture, there is a denial of marriage. Doctrines of demons. There is a forbidding of that which God ordained, the way that God ordained it. We've actually talked a lot about that through the teachings and the letters of Paul. What about the other one, though? Even if, you know, that one makes sense. Okay, I, I get that, but abstaining from foods? First of all, I personally don't like to abstain from any good food. <laughs> what about that? Well, we think what's going on here is, again, in Ephesus, the deceitful spirits were advocating a kind of a, a, an amalgam of Judaistic, cultic, mystical, vegetarian, back to the Garden of Eden spirituality. And they were saying there are certain foods you must not eat and you must abstain. What's interesting, and the reason I say vegetarian there, is because the word that Paul uses for food in verse 3... Note this, is broma. Broma is translated solid food and is synonymous with meat. In fact, the King James translates it meat. Those who would say uh, abstaining from meat which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Interesting. Paul, with this whole issue of abstaining from foods, goes directly back to pre-law creation which he did back in chapter 2. It was Adam who was first created, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived fell into transgression. He goes back to creation and says, look, this is not a new concept here. And Paul goes back to creation and back to the pre-law days. Note what he says in verse 4. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. It's sanctified by means of the Word of God and by prayer. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God saw what He had made and that He called it good. The Hebrew word is tov. It's just good stuff. And then on the eighth time, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it tells us God saw all that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The very good day was the day that He created man. It's all good. And you know what we do? 
we read passages like everything created by God is good and we say, all right, pot, whiskey, tobacco, it's all created by God. So it's got to be good. My friends, be wise. Because there are many twisted derivatives of what God created for good. He created mankind and called us very good. Are we always? And is every action and behavior of humanity good? Though we were created for good, that does not mean we are always good. And though God created all things to be gratefully received, and we're talking specifically about foods or what we take into our bodies, there are all kinds of good things that God made. But does that mean cannabis is good? Well, God made everything good, so therefore, be wise. I know we live in an era, in an age where, you know, marijuana is legalized, so no big deal, right? Well, okay, how do we know? How do we know what's good and what's not? How can you tell me that perhaps a little smoking of a joint every now and then is is not a good thing? Why are you talking about this, Rick? I've never smoked a joint in my life. You might say, but there's someone sitting beside you who's like, yeah, I'm really wondering about this. Bill looks right at Susie. (laughs) I saw that. (laughs) We talked about this. No. The Bible tells us in Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Not how blessed is the person who takes a hit from a joint. The Lord is good. So, okay, again, how do we know if something's good or not? How do, what's the test? How do we discern these things? Here's how. Paul tells us it's very simple. It is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. If it's sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer, it is good. So ask yourself, does the Word of God sanctify what I'm about to take into my body? Now the jury's out on Twinkies. But does God's Word sanctify what I'm going to take in? Listen, by God's own Word, He has already sanctified all food. What do you mean? Well, vegetables are obviously on the menu. Right? Because you can go all the way back to Genesis 1.29 in the Word of God. And God said, Behold, I've given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. Every tree which is fruit yielding, it shall be food for you. Now someone might say, Well, marijuana is a plant. Is it food? And is it nourishing? Studies have now confirmed that cannabis use destroys white brain matter. Well, what's white brain matter? White brain matter is, is the area that passes between the storage areas of the gray matter. And they say that long-term cannabis use results in as much as an 80% reduction of white matter among users. Which means it may be, the information may be stored in the gray matter, but you can't access it. You can't get to it anymore. White matter tends to break down even with aging, which is why some things, things that we knew very well, we're having a hard time finding in the file cabinet, you know? What is that that I was thinking? That's a white matter issue. And cannabis use destroys white matter, making information inaccessible. Is that nourishing? 
Is this a nourishing food that God has created for good for you to take into your body? So again, think about it while you can. He's given us all manner of vegetables and fruit to eat and to enjoy. It's good for us. It's healthy. It nourishes the body. And after the flood, God ordained that steak is on the menu. Yes! Thank you, Jesus. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you, even as I gave you the green plant. Sanctified by the Word of God. So enjoy that next state. You can do that. Now we all know about health and we all know about too much red meat and all. I, I get all that. The question is, what has God given us that we might take in for food? And the problem at Ephesus is that they were denying certain foods based on old dietary regulations and the law. Things that they determined, these, these deceptive spirits, they had determined this is right, this is wrong. What about that? What about the Jewish dietary laws? Because we know that there were certain things that were not good. Well, check this out. Acts chapter 10. If you want to turn there, do that quickly. Acts chapter 10. Verse 9. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city... Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. I love how God uses what's happening immediately in our lives. While they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, And crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times because Peter's a little slow. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Peter's vision... Pigs in a blanket. You know, the sheet comes down. And there's all manner of just unclean animals. Animals that the Jews were not supposed to eat. And the Lord says, Peter, go kill and eat. I know you're hungry. Have some. Now, now we all know. We know that the, the vision really had to do with was an indicator for Peter to understand God's acceptance of unclean Gentiles. Right? You understand that? Yeah. However, we also need to recognize that God is consistent even in His examples. That what God uses for example is in and of itself consistently a good thing. And so the obvious is true as well. All food is sanctified by the Word of God. Vegetables, meat, it's it's good. It's created for you. You can enjoy that meal. You can take in that food. Romans 14.17 tells us, however, that the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which really is the point. And these, these deceptive spirits were trying to get people not to eat. 
to do certain things to proclaim their righteousness and prove their worth or their value or their depth of spirituality. And this was a battle Paul fought all over the place. He fought it in Rome. He had to deal with it in Corinth. He dealt with it in Colossae. We read in his letters the various times where Paul says, Look, look, if you think that you shouldn't eat that food, then don't eat it. But don't tell your brother who doesn't have a problem with that food that he can't eat it because biblically it is sanctified by the Word of God. You know, you got to be convinced in your own mind. And respect each other enough, but recognize that when it comes to fruits and vegetables and meat and all the food that we have on the planet today, that God has provided it and that the Word of God sanctifies it. And by the way, so does prayer. All these good things of the Lord are sanctified by the Word of God, so you can test it against His Word. Is this nourishing? Is this good? And by prayer. Now, this is important. Because when he says there at the end of verse 4, going back, that it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer, I don't believe Paul is talking about this kind of prayer. Dear Lord, I have seen the kitchen. And so I pray, please bless this meal against botulism, E. coli, and the plague. I know the hands that prepared it. Bless them, but bless this food to our nourishment. You know, it's not like we're praying over the food to make sure we're not going to get sick. Well, we don't do that, really. We often pray, Father, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Just want to make sure that we don't, you know, have food poisoning. As if prayer was in and of itself some kind of penicillin, you know, or antibiotic to wipe out bacteria before it's too late. Listen, the sanctifying prayer Paul is talking about here is obvious because he makes a comment in the verse before, if it is to be received, or if it's received with gratitude the prayer that sanctifies my friends is thankful prayer thankful prayer receiving what the Lord has graciously given thanking him for his good provision recognizing that it comes from the Father thank you Lord that's why I love Thanksgiving by the way I've said many times over the years, I am a huge fan of the Thanksgiving holiday because the heart of the whole thing is not the turkey If it is, then you're a turkey. The heart of the whole meal is thank you, Jesus, for being our provider. Thank you, God, that you put on the the table before me what is good and nourishing. Thank you, Lord, that you are that intimately involved with my life that you make sure I don't go hungry. Thank you, Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 6.31, Do not worry then what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear for clothing. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now underscoring this, I would simply say, hey, be healthy. And the Bible also talks about treating our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. But Bromas and Sistas... Brom is the word for food. Regardless of the latest dietary fad, you gonna die. I mean, unless you're raptured, unless we're called out, which which I obviously believe is very possible and, and could be at any time that the Lord desires. But if I'm not raptured. I'm going to die. And there's nothing I can do about it. I've told you before, the statistics on death are immutable. I mean, they're unbelievable. 
It's like 99.9% of all people die. Enoch. Elijah. But everybody else, down you go. So it doesn't... Man, yeah, did you hear about this new diet? Did you hear about that one? I hear it all the time. In years of being in church ministry, the, the dietary buzzes that rush through fellowships are, to me, it gets comical. Because there's always a new one, and it's always the one that really is going to make the difference. I lost 74 pounds. Yeah, but you only weighed 100. That's a problem. <laughs> what is the point? Listen, the point is this. When diet or personal rights supersede devotion and the righteousness of God, blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm and have a shawarma. One last thing here on the spiritual danger. If you look again at verse 2, the third spiritual danger, after deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, he says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So number three, disingenuous liars. Disingenuous because these false teachers won't even do what they are asking others to do. They won't eat what they themselves are serving up. But there's something worse here than the hypocrisy, and it's the the use of the word liars. Paul is fired up here. This is the only time in all of his letters he outright calls someone a liar. These deceptive spirits teaching doctrines of demons are liars among you. Disingenuous. And the word he uses for liars is used only here in the entire New Testament. And it's a very interesting word. It's, listen, pseudo-logos. Pseudo-logos. False word. Phony word. The logos. The true word. I mean, you get what he's saying here. Jesus is the logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the true Logos, the Word made flesh. The pseudo-Logos, these liars, are in essence false Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. You could make a good case that this word pseudo-Logos is of the spirit of anti-Christ. Those who come along with another gospel, another way of salvation, another way to do it, the spirit of anti-Christ. Matthew 24, verse 23 says, If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, even if possible, the elect. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John said, Children, it's the last hour. Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many, many Antichrists have appeared. Many of them. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went, Note this. What was the very first thing that Paul said? In latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Here, John says, they went out from us. But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. And so here's the stinging condemnation Paul makes. These these disingenuous liars, these hypocrites, these pseudologos, these people have seared their own consciences as with a branding iron. 
And it is one of the most graphic depictions in all the Bible. The conscience seared. I mean, you can almost hear the sound of, of the mind burning. But when Paul wrote that, the people understood this was an ancient practice that was carried out in the Greco-Roman period, and that is a branding of criminals on the forehead with a branding iron marking their forehead in a way that's related to their crime. Consciences seared is going beyond that. It's not just skin. It's now conscience. Conscience seared. The word seared is kateriazo, where we get our word cauterized. A cauterized conscience. This is why we say those who are deceivers have themselves been deceived because their own consciences have been cauterized by their deceit. What happens when the flesh gets seared or cauterized? When we get third degree burns? Physically speaking, nerves are destroyed. That's where you know it's gone into the third degree and sensitivity is completely lost. And so for those who have their conscience seared, by their own hypocrisy, they lose all discernment. Literally coming to the point where there is no sensitivity to what is right and what is wrong. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And by the way, may we never in this generation of the church assume that we are better than those of the first century. We've got 2,000 years of education and illumination and revelation. We are the great generation. No, we're not. As I said early on, man, we are coming to faith in this generation just like every generation before us. And what's remarkable is how many people don't believe anything at all in this generation, though we have all of 2,000 years of explanation and understanding behind us. No, we all have to make a choice. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Understand, if you have wisdom, it's a wisdom that comes down from heaven alone. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 says solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And by the way, let me ask you one more time, what is the point of good teaching? What is the goal, 1 Timothy 1.5, of our instruction? Love. Let me ask one more time, just to make sure everyone understands. What is the goal of our instruction? Thank you. It's love. But listen to how he puts it. It is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. But if the conscience has been cauterized, you can't even love right. And so we see how dangerous this all is right there in the dining room. Here's the real spiritual danger, however. Of all these things... As we consider what might be going on, what what actually infiltrates among church fellowships and and how the, the doctrines of demons and the deceitful spirits come along as disingenuous liars and undercut the truth that we are seeking to be nourished by, here is the real danger. Please don't miss this. It is not that I might lose my salvation. 
It's that someone who is yet to taste and see that the Lord is good might themselves be denied that same nourishing faith. It's that someone may have come into the dining room and not yet have eaten. It's that someone has pulled up a seat at the table, but hypocrisy and lies and false teaching comes along. And I ask every Sunday, every Wednesday, how many people here are sitting at the table and haven't even tasted the food yet? Aren't even sure that the Lord is good. How many are on the line in this fellowship alone and should false teaching come into play or lies or deceptions and they just up and walk away? How many people heard through the church that yesterday was the last day of the, of the world and the day came and the day went and this morning they wake up and go, that's why I'm not going to church. That is the real danger. I'm not worried about losing my salvation. And if you are a brother or sister in Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus and you're worried about losing your salvation, brother or sister, you don't understand grace. If you know Jesus and you trust Jesus, you are saved. Stop worrying about it and start thinking about those who are not, who don't even know Him. I mean, really, am I in the struggle of my life for my salvation or am I in the struggle of my life for someone else's? That's the battle that we fight. The spiritual battle we've talked about, you're not battling for yourself. We are battling for the lost. We are fighting for the casualties. We are going after the captives. We are hoping that in the way we live our lives, that there might be others who then would join us, not because of us, but because of Jesus, and they might be saved and nourished on the Word of God. Listen to this quickly, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they have come, or may come to their senses, and listen, and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Several years ago, the Lord showed me that. I had never seen it before, never really understood it before. Not not to this depth. But that anyone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ is not in opposition to me. They are a captive of the enemy. Many don't even know they are captives. But when you look at someone not as fighting against you, but as actually captured, deceived, it's it's a completely different thing. Suddenly now I can love that person. I can care enough about them to go after them And to try to help them see the deliverance that we have received in Jesus Christ. The servant of the Lord is the one who goes after the captive. And that is the issue. We've got to get nourishment to the captives. We've got to get good biblical food out to those who are wounded in the fight. Which brings us to part two, the servant's discipline. And as I said, we're going to have to save the rest for midweek. But a final word, look at verse six. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Please, please don't pass this off to a pastor. What do you mean? 
I know the heading above verse 6 in many of our Bibles says a good minister's discipline. And you read that and go, okay, that section is for Timothy. Or maybe Pastor Rick ought to read that because, you know, that might help. I know that some translations, such as the King James, says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And I also know Paul is writing this letter to young Pastor Timothy. But I also know this. Minister is just servant. And if you would be a good servant of Jesus Christ then this applies to you, brothers and sisters. If we are servants of of Jesus, listen to what he said. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. You want to be a good servant? Be nourished on the good Word of God. Be thankful in prayer so that you then can turn around and pass along the good food to others at the table of the Lord. Father, we need Your Spirit in us like never before. And for me, Lord, the fact that You didn't come and take us home yesterday was proof positive that Your grace is still available. It was a reminder to me of how much you love the lost. How much you care for those who don't know you. And truly, Father, how patient and long-suffering you have been across these 2,000 years to wait that more might be saved, even if it's just one or just two or three. And Father, I pray that we would not be among those who are simply reclining at the table taking in the food, but we would eat, perhaps even in the kitchen, to serve the food to those who are starving. Teach us what it means, Lord, to bring the good food of Your Word to a deeply malnourished world. And Father, I pray that You'll seal Your Word to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.